I am joined in the air studio by some uh, heavy banjo weight here. Dom Flemons, welcome, Dom, to KGNU. Have you been? Have you been in our station before? On the phone before, and then of course we got to meet last year when I was over at the university. Yeah, yeah, I saw you at the uh, giving a presentation at the Gruson Music Hall uh, in what was it, February or March of uh, 2018, I guess. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating thing. I had no idea then that I'd get a chance to have you on my show uh, today, but it's great to have you, and welcome to KGNU. Standing by is Otis Taylor, the man. I'm just the driver. He's just the driver today, <laughs> but he's going he's gonna to be a little more noticeable than that through the rest of the week. Uh, the man who started all of this craziness called the Trance Blues Festival. Um, rather than going into a lot of uh, introductory stuff right now, I'm excited to have you. Uh, I know you just got the thing in tune and you haven't even warmed up yet. My favorite. Just throw the man a challenge. Let's see what you can do with cold fingers because you're not going to get another chance to warm up before I make you start. So let's go ahead. Jump into a tune, would you please? All right. Well, we'll go a little bit of Charmin' Betsy from Henry Thomas. Show your man, I'll never know. Oh, make 
goes wild not enough of us in here to make a big noise but man, that was terrific and i've got a million questions now being watching you up close as i mentioned earlier uh, we met at the grusin music hall when mr flemings gave a presentation on uh, shall we say american folk music and he was joined by anna and elizabeth who um, have that wonderful thing they do with the uh, not the crawlies, the cre- the windies. The, what is that thing they do? Oh, the, the crankies. The crankies, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Their little, their film things. So it was a it was a fascinating presentation, just from uh, uh, informational perspective. But as well, I was really taken by your music, your style of performing, and um, I've been trying to learn the secrets of the banjo for fifty years. Uh, and uh, you are the master of a whole bunch of them that I've never quite got around to yet. Now, I've always tried the five-string, and you're there on a four-string banjo, not the short-neck tenor banjo that a lot of people associate with Dixieland bands, but the plectrum banjo. It's got four strings, but it has a neck the same length as the usual five-string banjo that folks play. Um, most often, I've seen those things played with flat picks, and there's no flat pick anywhere near you. You had a thumb pick and four bare fingers. Um, whose style is that? Is that your unique style? Did you did you generate that from first principles, or did you learn something from somebody? Well, I had a combination of, of teachers and influences. Um, out in Phoenix, there were a few different banjo players uh, when I was coming up, but... Uh, you know, I I happened to know a fellow out in Flagstaff, Arizona, a fellow named J.P. Beausoleil. He had, he um, went on a trip to Europe one summer, and he passed me his banjo. It was a five-string, and he took the fifth string out of it. And at that point, I had started playing guitar. I'd been playing for several years, and I liked the sound of the banjo because my roots as a musician started out playing drums in the school band and so uh, the banjo had this sort of con- connectivity between drums and the rudiments of rhythm and then also melody being able to do the chords on it so that appealed to me and so I just started grabbing at influences from all over the place and when I started to listen to Gus Cannon's music I found that there was a lot of room in which the banjo could play a, a multitude of styles and so I just kinda developed a style off of that um, uh, well, I, I heard claw hammer, but I didn't know that you needed five strings to do it, so I figured out a way to be able to pick it so I could mimic that sound. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with the four yeah. string, I, I always loved that. And you played boodly bomb bomb earlier, and I learned that really easily uh, uh, in terms of being able to take blues licks, because I realized when I was playing the chords at one point, if I do some up picking, I can... Yeah. You know, that you could get uh-huh. some of those bluesy licks in there, or... Uh, 
which are things that when I listen to banjo historically, that there weren't a lot of examples of blues banjo, but no. just to be able to experiment with those ideas was appealing to me. So I just ended up developing my own style over time. I went to North Carolina and learned a little more about the old time banjo and just kept on moving from there, just developing a, whatever made sense for the song. Now, when I was a kid, uh, a teenager, shall we say, I saw a picture of Bob Dylan playing guitar with a harmonica on a, in a harmonica rack, much like the one you're using there. And so I went out and bought one of those, and I was trying to learn guitar at the time. That never went anywhere. But the first problem I had was that I kept losing whiskers to the, to the uh, wing nuts that hold the harmonica in place. And so I pretty much had to give up trying to play anything plus the banjo at the same time. Uh, but you uh, you whip those quills out, and the only other time I've heard quills was on lead belly recordings. So uh, there are not a lot of places where you can learn to play those things as well. Um, I've seen people playing bigger versions of them from South America, and they're known as panpipes. I'm sure you're familiar with that. But uh, tell me how you how you came to to pick up a set of quills and learn how to do that, and as particularly to do it while you're also doing something else. Well, as I mentioned before, I, I started the guitar first, and I got deep into Dylan. I'm, you know, I'm I'm part of a generation that is before the full-on digital changeover to where music was completely available. So I kind I grew up with record stores and going and finding out about individual artists and records. And very early on, I I guess I saw the the documentary the history of rock and roll on pbs and there was an episode on the folk revival and that interested me uh, to listen to the sounds of people like uh, let's see they had lightning hopkins and phil oaks and bob dylan and all these people and i got interested in that sound so i started learning how to play guitar and harmonica when it came to the quills it wasn't until about 2005 that i actually found a set i had listened to the recordings of henry ragtime texas thomas oh, yeah. and uh, i just loved that sound and i was trying to figure out ways to mimic it on the harmonica and tried to figure all sorts of ways to do it. But uh, when I went to the Black Banjo Gathering in 2005, I met Mike Seeger, who was the only person I had seen uh, that was a living musician playing the quills. And so I asked him about it, and I began to visit Mike Seeger for, I mean, uh, the last seven, eight years of his life. I'd go and visit him in Lexington, Virginia, and we talked a lot about the quills um, and playing them, some of the different stylistic things that we had heard from Henry Thomas, as well as Sid Hemphill from Mississippi. And then there was a third guy Mike introduced me to, Joe Patterson, who performed one year at the Newport Folk Festival in 1964. And so there are three main guys that I have kind of composited together to create the way that I do uh, Charm and Betsy, which is a Henry Thomas number. And so, um, yeah, I, I just started into playing it. And when Mike passed away, I then found a new cause that I was one of the few guys that was playing Henry Thomas in that style. And so mm -hmm. I've kept that on. And, and that's uh, that's how I started out in the quills. But I've always been interested in, in the uh, smaller, uh, smaller, random, esoteric instruments. I guess that's how, how, you know, being a percussionist, that was something that always drew me in. Smaller, random, esoteric instruments. I love that. Yeah, the bones, the jug, the quills. <laughs> well, I, I started on jug myself and, um, and moved to kazoo Wait, not long after that. Well, actually... Did you drink the jug or are you saying you started? No, no, I started with an... I found a, an antique one. Uh, there, oh, oh, uh, I thought you said there was an antique store on Pearl Street at about the 17th. <clears throat> yeah, I thought you were saying I started out on jug band playing, but soon hit the harder stuff, you know? <laughs> it's good. 
that's that's really good. Uh, yeah, no, you pick, pick that up really quickly too. Uh, so, friends, I am in the presence of genius here in the air studio this morning, and so I'm doing all I can just to keep my nose keep my nose above water. But uh, I I agree. It's those those unusual and and funky. Well, actually, I did. I started with the harmonica when I was about twelve. Nice. After failing at the piano and the cornet. Uh, and the harmonica stuck with me kazoo was a lot of fun and when i heard people you know back in the 20s and 30s playing kazoos uh, on old records uh, that's what passed for research in my day was uh, get some old records and listen to them um but i i thought yeah what a what a delightful thing to have you know to to have a 25 cent instrument that you can make music with uh, so harmonica and harmonicas used to be fifty cents when I first started buying them. Now they're over fifty bucks, but that's a whole other story we don't need to get into. Um, and you know, I know you know that too. So um, I want to ask you about research and so on, but I'm kind of ready to hear another song from you if you don't, uh, if you've got one ready to give. Sure. Yeah. Well, we were speaking about harmonica. This is um, this is one I've been playing a, a bunch recently. So kind of to tell you a little bit about research as well when I'm putting together arrangements. So this is a song that I first heard recorded by Eck Robertson, the, the early fiddler from mm-hmm. Texas. Yeah. And I just love the, the, the actual fiddle melody but i can't play fiddle at all that's the one instrument i really can't play is um is the fiddle so i ended up um you burn in hell for that otis <laughs> i he, he I, I forgot to turn his ringer off yeah. so i so i arranged this one to the, this fiddle tune onto the harmonica and i decided to put it in the style of d ford bailey with a lot of tongue blocking and cording which mm-hmm. is kind of for folks who don't know you can play one note but you can do You can you can kind of blend notes together, two notes at a time, sometimes three if you want to get real fancy. But this is a number that I got to play on the Grand Ole Opry last year when I made my solo debut over there, and I was left in a spot where because the group, uh, you know, the group beforehand, the, Ch- the Chocolate Drops, we were the first all African American string band to perform on the Grand Ole Opry, and so I was trying to figure out a way to present something that would be unique for my own personal story, um, that would. Um, that would tell something about the Opry's history. So I decided to start out just standing there by myself on the on the floor of uh, of the Ryman and and playing a little bit of this one. There's a brown skin girl down the road somewhere. So let me go ahead and whip this one up just a little bit here. See if I can get a little bit of that extra Opry gusto. You're listening to Dom Flemons on the Morning Sound Alternative on KGNU.
Fantastic. So that's an Eck Robertson fiddle tune arranged for harmonica. Yep. And yeah, you put a lot of work into that arrangement. There's a there's a lot going on there. And it, you mentioned DeFord Bailey, the was for years the only African American on the Grand Ole Opry, and he surprised a lot of people that there was one. Even uh, he was a harmonica virtuoso. Uh, you really, uh, I've been playing for a long, long time. You pulled through techniques there that I'm only guessing at because I've never come across them either um that's a that's really something so you learned by learning from other people as well as pushing yourself and just trying things out i promised uh, that we'd talk a little bit about research um you grew up in arizona in phoenix which had i guess a music scene but it was sort of far from Shall we say the folk scare that was going on in New York City at the time? Uh, what were the what were the sources that you had then, and how how did you go from there to you know Library of Congress quality research that you've done in in the last decade or more? Well, at first it started out with just buying records and trying to get in, in, get more information about the music. So you know I got into you know Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Hank Williams and Charlie Patton and all those all those different folks and and again I I I, I came up. I came of age at a, a particular time where they were reissuing not just older recordings, but um, recordings from the 60s and 70s, and they were being re uh, repackaged and represented in, with a new perspective. And so I kind of caught the, the full brunt of all of these new releases coming out. So When, when the CD ca production capacity exactly. e exceeded the sales, there was a time for some, yeah, time to reissue some old LPs. And then also I was, I was deep into LPs at that point, and that was a time... Before there were players, were folks that weren't DJs. Uh, you know, you had people that kept their stereos from before, and they had their LPs, and then you had DJs more or less. And so I also <laughs> had the opportunity Guilty. to go to the the bargain bin and be able to find. You know, I found. Uh, yeah, I'd say like all of Leonard Cohen's collection for three dollars or something like that. So <laughs> I, I I was able to inherit like a uh, a fifty year span of. Uh, of popular music, whether it was folk music, traditional music, or whatnot, and I had access to a lot of music just because it was it was there in Arizona, and so that's how it started. When I went to college, uh, the college university at Northern Arizona University had a beautiful library of um, all of the RCA Vintage Victor uh, RCA Victor Vintage series. Uh, um, it had all of the Library of Congress uh, government issued uh, LPs and whatnot, and I would just check these things out from the library all of my years in college. So I was just taking in music. Music, learning stuff. I was also jamming and playing gigs and whatnot in Flagstaff, so that was one version of it. After I went to North Carolina in 2005, I began to work with a nonprofit music maker relief foundation, and that got me in touch with a lot of traditional players that were currently living in North Carolina. I also went to a lot of the fiddle conventions, Mount Airy, Clifftop, uh, Rockbridge, and all those places, and so I was able to kind of fill in an experience that before I kind of had the, the faraway dreams of... Um, 
of the East Coast, the South, or the Northeast when it came to music and all of these different artists that were out there. It was, it was almost like when I read about uh, people of that time, like someone like Jim Queskin meeting like Mississippi John Hurt. When I first mm-hmm. met Jim Queskin, he was my Mississippi John Hurt. So um, I was able to find a satisfaction in meeting my heroes as well as be able to expand the scholarship of um, African-American folk songs or different uh, pieces of the puzzle, whether it be jazz or folk or blues that needed a a little bit of help connecting the dots. Uh, so I, I just made a purpose of doing that. So kind of balancing uh, between interpretive uh, music as well as original music. And so that, that's what I, I, can, I keep on doing. And, and also there's, there's more research that's coming out. You know, what I've been amazed at is how much uh, information that still has not been found, that's still being uh, presented back into the public. And uh, I, I think that we're at such a golden age for, for research. So I'm always keeping an ear out for a new sound. It does seem that idea. people like you and others are, are always digging up little nuggets of, of stuff that throws a, a new facet onto a life uh, that may have been thought to have been well-researched already, or even just digging up people that, frankly, nobody ever heard of, and who, you know, somebody who, who has a an outrageous, uh, you know, one really great song that nobody ever heard. Um, I I ran across, uh, went to, I don't think I brought it either. I should have. Um, did you ever hear of the Mississippi Mud Steppers? Oh, yeah. Uh, Ooh, bring boy. it on home to your grandma. Yeah. That just sort of, it, it just showed up in my life one day. <laughs> one of the greatest songs I've ever heard in my life. Just a brilliant arrangement, fantastic performances. And, and and with that, just that little element of chaos in there, too, that, that makes it timeless instead of just another cool thing. So yeah. you're, um, you are, are one of those guys. You know, I was in a band uh, that in 1970 we opened for Jim Queskin here in Boulder. Um, so I, he, the same. He was a very different guy then from what I expected because, we, you know, I had also seen him with in the last year of the jug band uh, when uh, richard green was playing fiddle in the band and bill mm-hmm. keith yeah. and maria uh, was was singing and so on i saw them uh, at, at a show in denver and it was a life-changing experience i was already a fan i already had the records but to see them live was you know well, you know and i'm sure people yeah. at home know the the magic of the live performance but to to rub up against people who've sort of learned a whole lot of stuff that you're just dying to know I have I have had that thrill a little bit. I even got to we our band also opened for the Earl Scruggs Review in seventy wow. and seventy one, and um, we we had no idea how lucky we were to be in that position at the time. We were still kind of green, you might say. Well, so you're also with all of these other things. You're also a composer. You've written you've been writing songs c- c- kind of from the beginning, didn't you? Write songs as a as a youth. Oh yeah, yeah. I've I've always written songs. Like I had about ten years where I didn't really want to present original material because I found that it was avant garde to have to not do original material. And I just over time I've just found that so many acoustic and folk acts they just they rely completely on original material all the time. But there is a a beauty to interpreting some of the old-time music and readapting it and refashioning it and also cr- making it relevant for a current audience. And I find that this is, this is something I've, I've gotten a little bit... Uh, I've gotten... I, I, I found that there's a value in it even more so now than maybe even five to ten years ago. I found that there's, um, there are so many people that are coming up in the ranks that um, there's just not an unbroken 
line of musical culture that that there once was now in digital it's kind of opened it up so everybody gets a chance to hear everything but at one point when you had to find your individual records you only had the entry point of whatever you could find and that in of itself leads an individual on a journey where they can find a musical culture in of, uh, in of itself, whether it's their own personal journey or if you say get into jug band music, you can find an extensive culture that it grows around the, the circumstances in which jug band music was recorded in the 60s or whether it was in the 20s or whatnot. And um, yeah, I just, um, I've always tried to, to have a little bit of both happening in, in some type of way, you know. Uh, I... Uh, yeah, when I, when I'm writing a song though now, I, I after about ten years of really doing the interpretive arts, I found that when I'm writing a song, I try to find, uh, I don't know, I, I try to think of songs I really like or artists I really enjoy, and try to create a lost record of, around the artists that I really enjoy, and so that's been sort of an exercise in my mind to kind of. Uh, tap into the things I've learned in my journey, but also to pull out a new creative spirit out of a tradition of music. And that just seems right in line with the things I learned as I was traveling along, that you, you learn it and then eventually you interpret it and create something new out of it. Well, you're echoing something I heard Utah Phillips say late in his life. He, he His critique of the contemporary folk music industry was that everybody was just playing their own songs, uh, so it, it had become a singer-songwriter uh, parade rather than a being about folk music, about about other you know traditional pieces and so on. That you, uh, all you you know you went to see somebody, you only were going to hear their own compositions, and without so much as a nod to the the millennia of music that had come before them, which um, surely they must know something about. But no, I want to. This is a little number me and my brother wrote when we were driving in from the East Coast. And, and you know, I we all sat through a lot of boring coffeehouse uh, performances of people who just had to get their own little secrets out there into the world. Not everybody is a great songwriter, but it's always felt to me that a song that's lasted for 200 years, that people are still singing, has some essential strength and magic and power in it that you can tap into and, and treat audiences to something that uh, is in many ways more powerful than your own uh, your own truth that you're trying to uncover so uh, you well uh, you seem I mean your album Black Cowboys that you were talking about when I saw you uh, last year uh, that certainly involved learning a lot of material but also researching the lives of the people who were involved in that and did you have to go pretty far afield for those kinds of things? I know you're a you're a Westerner. My children are a fifth generation Coloradans. I know your grandfather was a in northern Arizona, wasn't he? You, That's correct. So you've been a you've been out here for your family's been here quite a long while. But you had to go into some pretty out of the way places to dig up the the material on um, on Black Cowboys, which was really a major project. I mean, Smithsonian got behind it and. You, I think you, you didn't. You give a lot of talks about that, like the one you gave here. At, at oh Boulder? yes, I'm still, I'm still giving you're, a, quite you're a few. Still working that album. Oh well, the thing that's been interesting now is that the, it's reverberating back into the local community. So when I'm going to different venues, and one one type of venue is our Western museums, which there are a bunch of them uh-huh. around. Yeah. And it was, it was my hope that I'd be able to get this in the gift shop of the of those of those various museums oh, because really? there was. 
there's always been a a notion to correct what has been misplaced in history and a lot of the western museums the historians are trying to figure out a way to bring this bring it all back together in a general sense so it's been interesting to see the reverberations as i go to a place i'm presenting my story but the local communities are presenting their stories at the same time like i was just in a Gillette, Wyoming, and the fellow who had me out, he found all this information about black cowboys of Gillette, Wyoming, and and there was there's quite an elaborate black history of the state of Wyoming. But of course, if you'd go there now, you wouldn't necessarily know that. But it's um, those are the sort of things I'm seeing with this um, with this project. But for me, when I came to putting the the album together, I was trying to first think about how could I make it appealing? Because that was one thing I found with a lot of the, the research material, like with people like John Lomax and Jack Thorpe, they were they were conscious of saying, we want to try to make it popular because it's a, it was a type of music and it was a sort of social background that was looked down upon at it in, during its time. And so the idea of being able to put together a popular collection of songs that would reflect African-American, uh, not just cowboys, but as I began to research, I found that it was a bigger story of westward migration. And so that was where my family story reached into it, because my, my father's story, I'm half African-American and half Mexican-American on, on my on my mom's side. And so we're six-generation Phoenix on my mom's side, and we're, and my dad's parents they came out from eastern texas and uh, little rock arkansas and came over to northern arizona to follow the sawmill work so as i started to delve into the story of westward migration i found a lot of my family's story within that even though i wouldn't say that i had ever talked to them about black cowboys or westward migration as a bigger theme but i knew that was part of their lives and they spoke about that so it was a very interesting exercise of saying okay black cowboys who are they what are they why why were they in the west and then why haven't i heard about them so it was a kind of a, a series of questions to and then the the final one was what did the music sound like so i ended up going to a bunch of different sources and finding some songs that were associated with black cowboys like home on the range for example is a song that um was collected by john lomax from a, a black cowboy in san antonio and the version that this black cowboy sang John Lomax had transcribed into sheet music, and that is the Western national anthem we know now. Mm. So, like a song like that was one. Goodbye, old paint was another one. Um, Jess Morris, the the uh, white fiddler who recorded it for John Lomax, mentioned that he learned it from an ex-slave named Charlie Willis who worked on the range with him. And so, there were a couple of those stories within it. I even found um, when I went to the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Elko for the first time. Uh, Don Edwards, the great cowboy singer, mm-hmm. he introduced me to a book, Pardoner of the Wind, which is the autobiography of Jack Thorpe, who was the very first person to make his own cowboy songbook mm-hmm. two years yeah. before John Lomax. And in that autobiography, the first thing he mentions is he goes on, he goes out on the range, coming from upstate New York down to New Mexico. He walks into the camp and sees a bunch of black cowboys sitting and singing a song about their horses. And it, the song, the tone, the way they sang it appealed to him so much, he needed to write it down. And so he then found out that none of the cowboys knew more than two verses at a time on any given song. So he then had found himself on a quest to find all of the verses to a song like the Chisholm Trail, which has a thousand verses to it. Um, but he he started because he heard these black cowboys singing in a way that he described as uh, being a reflection of the loneliness on the range, the feeling of being away from one's home, and the feelings you get uh, when you're out there on the range, which to me translate into 
He's hearing the blues, a tonality of the blues somehow. Even though it's not blues music, there's a tonality that's different than the other songs that he very explicitly says, I didn't want work songs, I didn't want these type of songs and these type of songs, but this one song, this was the one that did it. So I I tried to take that sort of approach on the whole album. Like, for example, one song on there that starts it out is uh, the song Black Woman, which was collected by John Lomax, and it wasn't classified as a cowboy song, but... When I began to look at the lyrics again, uh, when I was putting the project together, I thought it made a very compelling story for black cowboys, as well as black women of the West. It's kind of funny. We we often think of, oh, yeah, those old-timers, they knew everything. Um, I remember Lomax saying, uh, when he went down to the Appalachians and was recording string bands and so on, he said there were very few string bands knew more than two or three tunes together. Uh, other than the Skillet Lickers, it was hard to find a, a group that actually had a whole a whole set of stuff that they could play uh, uh, properly. Uh, we, you know, at this great remove in time from all of that, a hundred years later, we just sort of assume everybody knew a thousand tunes like Fiddle and John Carson and 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 went from there. So I, I, that's a, a really uh, insightful bit you, you mentioned there, that nobody knew more than two verses to uh, the song. I have to say, I love your performance of uh, Goodbye Old Paint. And I wonder, with your uh, your dual heritage, um, Charles Badger Clark went down and spent some time in Arizona in the early years of the 20th century to to get over tuberculosis, which mm-hmm. had ravaged his family, and uh, wrote um, Spanish is the Loving Tongue. Is that in your repertoire? Do you do that one? Oh, that's not in my repertoire, but I've always loved the song. Yeah, light is... Uh Spanish is loving tongue, uh, soft as beauty and light as spray. It, yeah, it just it's, uh, it it creates a picture for me. You yeah, know, the old guy sitting in the in the chair around the around the pot belly stove in the bunkhouse, telling his younger compadres just what life is about. So I was hoping maybe to get that one out of you. But do you have another? Did you bring another song you might share with us this morning? Oh, sure. Well, I'll sing a little bit of Black Woman for you. Oh, that's You know, it's a, it, it's a funny thing. My When we were writing the liner notes for it, the, of course, the recording was the quickest part. It took about a year and a half to write these liner notes. And my, my wife uh, helped uh, write uh, parts of it with me. And... This is just kind of the serendipity of the project in general. So I had Black Woman set in place as a song I wanted to have to be a part of this record. But I was having a lot of trouble finding information about black women in the Old West. And we went to go visit... Women, a, women in general. Yeah, well, and, and the thing is, as I started to read more about women in the West, it was interesting to find that many of them were proprietors and that they were people that came in and helped civilize the towns. And so, oh, yeah. as if you looked at it strictly as a cowboy story, you would miss the women, almost like the, the forest for the trees in a certain way, because... <laughs> and, and again, if we, if we all think back on cowboy movies, it's, it's always sort of an educated ranch woman that the cowboy is marrying, and there's a reason for that. And so with African-American women in the West, uh, we were visiting uh, her, uh, my wife's grandmother, and she was a reading specialist in Pullman, Illinois, over, over near Chicago, and a part of the Pullman Porter's uh, uh, community. And so we mentioned black cowboys, and she said, oh, yeah. And she grabbed a, 
grabbed uh, my wife's uncle and said, Harold, get the Black Women of the West book out. And so she pulled out a book ah. that by William Lauren Katz, uh, who also wrote a book called Black Indians, which is a great book as well for folks uh, that want to get deeper into some of this Western history. And one of the things that I found was that there were these it was an elaborate story of educated women coming from different parts of the East, and they they would make a a, a strong, uh, sometimes a religious community, other times a goodwill society, and then they would build up the towns one step at a time. And so this compelling story uh, began to, uh, you know, begin to evoke itself just from this book. And then it connected with this song, Black Woman, uh, which was recorded by Vera Ward Hall. A lot of people know her song, like Another Man Done Gone, which is another great one that I'd, I'd sung for many years. And and um, But let me sing you a little bit of Black Woman. I sang that one one time. Actually. Yeah, it's a, a beautiful song. And, by request. Yeah, and she... Um, she sang so many songs for John Lomax, and then Alan Lomax, and then uh, Harold Corlander. And so I composited a version that was um, halfway between Vera Ward Hall's version and then another fellow named Rich Amerson, who was a fellow who, who was a, an influence on Vera Ward Hall. So here's a little bit of Black Woman here. <clears throat> uh, hmm. Well, come here, Black Woman. Uh -hmm. And sit on daddy's knee uh -hmm. Well, I've got something to tell you, pretty mama uh -hmm. Don't you holler, lordy Ah, uh -huh. oh, well, I'm going back to Texas. Ah, uh -huh. to hear that wild ox moan. Ah, uh -huh. and if it's morning, don't suit me, black woman. Uh-huh. I'm gonna drive my bell cow home. Uh-huh. Don't your kitchen feel lonesome? Uh-huh. When your biscuit roll is gone. Friends, you've been listening to Dom Flemons on the Morning Sound Alternative here on KGNU. Um, I have a million more questions, but we got a program to do. And <clears throat> the first thing I have to do is to say you're listening to KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. Um, you're here right now for the Trance Blues Festival. Uh, please give me some data on that. What time today and where? what, what will you be... When and where will you be performing? Well, this time around, I'm I'm only going to be a part of the banjo um, uh, panel that's going to be going on today. That'll be around, I believe, five o'clock over at the Case Building, if I if I'm uh, not mistaken. And 
when I got invited out, um, it's, it's going to be a wonderful panel with myself and Otis Taylor, also Dwandalyn Reese from the National Museum of African American Culture, uh, History and Culture, uh, Dr. Dwandalyn Reese. Uh, she's the music curator, so she'll, she'll also be doing a presentation on African American music, and she said she'll be t- uh, talking about um, sort of the way that artifacts and, um, and items from one's life tell a lot about the culture that surrounds that life. And so African American music is... Um, very much uh, driven by some of that um, that notion in of itself, and then there will be um, um, there will be a I believe Johnny uh, Johnny um, Johnny Gimble from um, the um, the Banjo Museum in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, will also be there, and so I've also gotten to spend some time with him. Um, the museum started out as actually the Dixieland Tenor Banjo Museum. But then once Johnny came in, he saw that there was a there was a lack of the diversity of the banjo's history because it was all tenor banjos, Eddie Peabody style, mm-hmm. and it's it's and it's actually a fantastic museum for that as well. In case people aren't aware of the the four string as much as the five string, the four string has its own island. Oh, it used to be the whole thing there for a while. <laughs> yeah, practically the the thirties. Uh, most people thought of the banjo as just being the tenor, and and it's really something to be able to see a combination of both. Um, the tenor banjos from uh, pop music styles, maybe like a, I guess Eddie Peabody is probably one of the main uh, figures. They even have the some. The man have, with and, the banjo. And they have some of his suits there and everything oh, really? like that. <laughs> they, but they also have Elmer Snowden's banjo from the okay. Duke Ellington's band. And I mean, uh, they just did a, an exhibit on Steve Martin last year. And so they're starting to bring in more of the different aspects of the five string. They're even, even one of the great things, too. There's the, the famous. Uh, uh, painting from Henry Tanner, the banjo lesson, and uh, they have I an animat- they have an animatronic banjo lesson in the front of it. So when you walk oh, into no. the place, you get to see the picture of the the older man teaching the young man, and he says uh, something encouraging like, "Well, try this out, son." You know, so you get you get a Johnny brought in has, has brought in this a sort of a just a bigger idea of the banjo to the museum. So it, it's going to be a great combination where we're going to be talking about the banjo as a um, as a cultural phenomenon as well as a musical. phenomenon phenomenon because um, once you bring in african-american culture just like with black cowboys the history itself is so powerful but it has remained somewhat under the um the perception of of consciousness it's been right in the subconscious of 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 the of um the dialogue of american musical culture for so long but to be able to pull the banjo into into a a place where you can expand it out into a much more elaborate history that is both social as well as um, musical, it really tells a lot about American history, um, uh, the the good and the bad of it. But we're going to be talking probably about just the different uh, the different phases of the banjo's existence, going from from uh, different parts of Africa, translating through the Caribbean, going into the American South, and then on my end, I'll talk more about the songsters and the way that it translated as it went into the 20th century. And so that's kind of a, an idea. And of course, Otis will probably talk about the way that it it evolved past and being able to move the banjo into uh, far different spectrums of music and whatnot. So it's going to be a really, really amazing panel. What time uh, is that going on? Let me just... Because uh, I've heard a couple of different times, and let, I wanted to get the uh, get the uh, yeah, yeah, horse's me, mouth here. Let me get the... the songster's r- mouth. <laughs> and it will be uh, 5.30... 
is when it's going to be starting. So that that'll be that'll be when it's going on. And the Case Auditorium. Yeah, and that'll be at the Case Auditorium. And if you want to catch Duandalin's uh, presentation, that'll be going on at 4:30. So there will be a pre-talk where Duandalin will be speaking about African American music and a uh, around artifacts at 4:30. Then 5:30 we'll have our have our talk going on. Fantastic, friends. It's um, there's a lot of information out there that uh, could be coming your way if you show up. So I want to say thank you, Dom Flemons. You know, um, this weekend. Um, there's going to be a group inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame that always called themselves their their called their name the most carefully pronounced name in show business. The Mother Folkers is the name of the group, and they're they're great. They're they're wonderful. We love them. They've been around forever. Well, you have one of the most often mispronounced names in the business. One of our DJs before he played a, a cut from you uh, last Friday night. Uh, said he had seen you on the Grand Old Opry, and Don Fleming, he can really, he can really bring it. Um, and so I'm sure you've put up with a lot of that. But Dom Flemons has been our guest today, and uh, he's appearing as a part of the Trans Blues Festival later today. And today's your only, your only appearance as a part of it. Yeah, but Otis has stuff going on all week. Pretty oh much. yeah, th- and it's going to be great. I. I... I ended well. I'm not, actually after the panel. I'm going to be jumping back on tour with um, with Rev Payton's Big Damn Band and J.D. Wilkes. So I had that tour set in place, and then Otis called me literally the day after I had set this tour in place. So I, I'm I'm so sad to miss the Trans Blues Fest because I've I've known Otis for uh, quite a while, and and just uh, I've wanted to make it out for the festival. And hopefully, hopefully next year we can we can try to get something worked out because that would be just amazing. To you make know, I don't know out. if he knows this, but uh, I used to see him in 1971 or 72 sitting under a tree in in central park playing his banjo i think he used to play the cuckoo oh nice. uh, that was one of his one of his tones and it, it may have been as late as oh say 75 or 6 but i remember seeing him yeah, a long long time ago sitting out in the park uh, sharing his banjo with the with the folks so um, I've been here a long time, and you—we both been in the West uh, our whole lives, pretty much. Uh, You've—you went off to uh, the lousy weather of the the East, but uh, it's good to have you back out here in the sunshine. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day and coming and joining us. And thank you for having me, Dom Flemons, ladies and gentlemen. We've got some messages to get to, and then um, we've got another band that's waiting in the cabaret room. Uh, it's um, there's going to be a little bit more banjo going on here. Railroad Earth is just about all warmed up and ready to go. So. Thanks, Dom, and I hope to see you later today. All right, thanks, friends. And down the road.